0: Hi everyone, you're listening to Infectious Ideas, a podcast series presented by the National Foundation for Infectious Diseases, the NFID, where leading experts join us for thought-provoking conversations that lead to infectious ideas. Guests include humble heroes and future leaders working together towards a shared vision of healthier lives through effective prevention and treatment.
1: Welcome to the NFID podcast, Infectious Ideas. This is Marla Dalton, NFID Executive Director and CEO, and with me is my co-host, NFID Medical Director, Dr. Bill Schaffner. Bill, always good to have you.
0: Good to be with you and to be with Dr. Plotkin.
1: Indeed. So, today's guest is a preeminent scientist who literally wrote the book on vaccines, Dr. Stanley Plotkin. His textbook is the standard reference on vaccinology, which has been called the most respected source of reliable information on the vaccine tools we now have available. Dr. Plotkin's work on vaccines against diseases such as rubella and rotavirus has led to profound reductions in morbidity and mortality around the world. He has also played a pivotal role in developing vaccines for rabies, polio, and varicella, among others, and is known as the founding father of the Pediatric Infectious Diseases Society, or PIDS. In 2009, NFID recognized Dr. Plotkin with the Maxwell Finland Award for Scientific Achievement. He's a former member of the NFID Board of Trustees and has been a popular speaker at the NFID Annual Conference on Vaccinology Research, engaging audiences with his predictions on the future of vaccinology. Just a few years ago, at age 74, Stanley finally achieved one of his lifelong dreams. He learned to fly an airplane. So Stanley, you certainly have had some interesting experiences over the years, and we're thrilled to have you here with us today. To get us started, can you share with us how you first got interested in infectious diseases?
2: Uh, Yes, um, I can give you the precise reasons for that. It it was that at age 15, I read uh, two books. Uh, One was the novel uh, Arrowsmith. Mm-hmm. And the other was a book called Microbe Hunters uh, by Paul de Cruyff. Those two books, uh, which were about m- uh, microbe hunters and the development of vaccines, uh, both actual and fictional, uh, really moved me. And so at age 15, I decided that's what I wanted to do in life. Fortunately, I was then at what is called the Bronx High School of Science which is a special high school in New York City which also enabled me to learn about science
1: fascinating um i'll just jump right in now and say that you know most of our listeners probably know that rubella is the r in MMR the measles mumps rubella vaccine but i think many are not really familiar with the disease or the impact it historically had on pregnant women can you share from your perspective why this vaccine was so particularly important
2: Yes. Well, first of all, I uh, should say, uh, I like saying that a chance is the most important thing in life. And uh, what happened was uh, I was a house officer at the Great Ormond Street Hospital in in London. When we began to see, uh, this was in 1963, we began to see uh, children with uh, rubella and uh, of course that meant that their mothers were being a- exposed uh, that al- also gave me the opportunity to work in the laboratory at great ormond street uh, on uh, rubella it was it had just become possible to isolate rubella virus so uh, that was a great stimulus and i came back after finishing residencies uh, at Great Ormond Street, I came back to Philadelphia Children's Hospital, and the epidemic followed me, and cases of rubella began to go up precipitously in Philadelphia and elsewhere in the U.S., leading to a major, you could call, pandemic of uh, rubella. And at the time, uh, r- routine diagnostic laboratories didn't know how to work with rubella. So I, I had that laboratory experience gained in, at Great Ormond Street. And I opened a research laboratory on rubella, but also rapidly became tasked with diagnostic virology on women who had been exposed or who had a rash uh, during pregnancy. Uh, and subsequently, of course, when uh, literally hundreds of children in Philadelphia were born with um, abnormalities due to congenital rubella, uh, I was also involved in in diagnosing their situation. So just by chance, I was there at the right time in the right place.
0: That's wonderful, Stanley. And let's stick with rubella and rubella vaccine for just a moment here, because you developed rubella vaccine using fetal cells rather than what was more traditional at the time using animal cells. That's a fascinating story. Can you talk about that a little bit?
2: Yes. So, fetal cells had been developed at the Wistar Institute at the University of Pennsylvania, where I had my lab. And um, uh, the uh, the original uh, goal of cultivating those cells was to study fetal development. Uh, however, it rapidly became obvious that because they were human cells, you could grow human viruses in those cells. And also at the time, there was a good deal of discussion about contamination of cell cultures, particularly uh, from uh, monkeys, uh, where extraneous viruses were inadvertently being injected uh, into people because uh, the cells were were contaminated. They were from adult uh, monkeys. So when I started to work on the attenuation of rubella virus, uh, it seemed obvious to me that the safest cells Uh, would be fetal cells, human fetal cells, because the fetus lives in a sterile uh, environment. Uh, I obtained fetal cells from the the other laboratories at the Wistar, and I started to cultivate rubella virus uh, in those cells and uh, to do um, the attenuation of the virus in those cells by by passage uh, actually at low temperatures Uh, in order to reduce the uh, potential virulence of the virus in those cells. However, I became involved in a controversy. Mm -hmm. And the controversy was twofold. One was the scientific controversy uh, led by Albert Sabin that fetal cells somehow could be contaminated with a human leukemia virus or something like that. And then, of course, the religious objections to using uh, fetal cells. And just focusing for a moment on the, the latter, one should understand that the fetal cells are used starting at about the 15th or so replication. And if you do the arithmetic, that means that the original fetal cells has been diluted millions of times in passage, and that should reduce the religious objection to using them.
0: uh, Well, it should, but it didn't quite right away, right, Stanley? So there were regulatory issues and skepticism from some scientists, such as Albert Sabin, but on the religious aspect, That's something that's persisted on and off almost till today. And my understanding is it even came to the attention of His Holiness the Pope.
2: Yes, but the Pope, I think, was quite reasonable about it. He decided that the value of of the vaccine was so important. And as I said before, the dilution of the original cells was such that he could allow uh, fetal cells to be used in uh, the rubella vaccine. And I, I, I think that was, you know, from my point of view, it was a wise uh, decision taking into account the realities and the value of the vaccine in preventing women from having damaged fetuses and, and actually uh, reducing abortions because they, the women were protected against congenital rubella.
0: Well, the logic certainly appealed to most of us, right? And uh, in effect, the Pope gave the rubella vaccine his blessing. So yes. that worked out. But was this a stressful period for you having to negotiate that? Because you were on the forefront of much of this discussion.
2: Well, it was stressful, but... Perhaps the greatest stress arose from Albert Sabin, who, uh, as you know, attenuated poliovirus in uh, monkey kidney cells. So he was opposed to the use of fetal cells. And what happened was a meeting was held at NIH uh, to evaluate the candidate vaccines, one of which was a rubella vaccine attenuated in uh, monkey kidney cells, actually well over 100 passages in monkey kidney cells. And so from my point of view, the risk for that vaccine was infinitely greater than the risk from a vaccine grown in human fetal cells. Anyway, at that meeting, let's say without being asked, Sabin got up and uh, essentially said, uh, we should not use the human fetal cell vaccine because it could be dangerous, etc. And being young and uh, perhaps not being sufficiently uh, cowed <laughs> by Sabin, uh, I followed him to the microphone and in, I think, respectful terms said that he was wrong and that, if anything, the human fetal cells uh, were safer than the monkey kidney cells. And to his credit, he came up to me uh, afterwards at, at lunchtime and joked about our opposition. And uh, later on, uh, I, I was friendly with him. So it's just one of those scientific arguments. and I, I. But I'm happy that I had the courage to oppose Albert Sabin, who was, of course, a giant. <laughs>
0: It's a wonderful story. So uh, let's transition just a little bit. So you've had this extraordinary experience with rubella vaccine, and then another vaccine you worked on, rotavirus vaccine. Uh, were the two linked? That were there scientific links, or uh, other experiential aspects of this that uh, influenced your work on rotavirus?
2: Well, yes and no. I mean, obviously. Um The more one does in the laboratory, the more adept one is on virus isolation and passage and cell culture. But they're really quite different biological problems because, as you know, Bill, rubella is a viremic disease. Mm. And so stopping the viremia enables you, in effect, to prevent serious infection and, and fetal infection whereas rotavirus uh, is a mucosal infection. And, you know, just parenthetically, as you know better than I, uh, we're not that great at uh, preventing mucosal uh, infections. And so uh, the scientific issues were quite different. And what what had happened, as you will remember, was that Albert Kapikian at NIH developed a rotavirus vaccine that was made in rhesus cells. And the problem was that those cells were contaminated, and the vaccine, if anything, was was more reactogenic than desirable, causing an intersusception, when I and and others, for that matter, Realized that that vaccine would not work, indeed was taken off the market. We set to work to make a better vaccine. Now, by better, I mean safer, uncontaminated. And that, of course, was based on using fetal cells, but also a vaccine that covered many different strains of rotavirus, because Capickian and for that matter, most of if I may say so, most of the competing rotavirus vaccines are based on what's called G-types. But there are many different G-types, something like 15 different G-types of of rotavirus in in nature. And our effort was based on making a pentavalent vaccine, that is to say with five different G-types. Now, it gets complicated because other rotavirus vaccines based on one G-type, do work. And unfortunately, there are very few head-to-head comparisons of different rotavirus vaccines. But in fact, at least the two studies I know of, the pentavalent vaccine is in fact more effective than the monovalent vaccine. Nevertheless, all the rotavirus vaccines are going to give some protection. The problem is that pentavalent vaccine is more expensive than some of the other vaccines. And Merck has not been interested in going outside uh, the U.S. and Europe to use that vaccine. But I think that's unfortunate because I do think it's the most effective.
1: You know, Stanley, I'll take us in a little bit of a different direction now and look back at some of these remarkable predictions that you've made at the uh, NFID Annual Conference on Vaccinology Research. So, You may not remember, but back in 2007, you correctly predicted that within the next decade, a new monovalent rotavirus vaccine would be licensed and the burden of rotavirus disease in developed countries would greatly be reduced. We'll take that 10 years later, and in 2017, you predicted that an RNA vaccine would be licensed for use in humans, which has since happened and that an RSV vaccine would be licensed for use in older adults, which certainly seems likely now. So I'll ask, what what are your predictions for the next five to 10 years?
2: Oh, boy. <laughs> that's, that's dangerous territory. <laughs> Obviously, one of the major issues for us to solve is the issue of messenger RNA vaccines their immune stimulation, which is apparently incomplete in that memory, is not good uh, after messenger RNA vaccines. So that's that's a, a a major problem that we have to solve if we are going to use mRNA vaccines in the future uh, beyond uh, COVID, or, and or for that matter for COVID we could use improvements so that we don't have to give uh, serial boosters. Another issue is vectors. The adenovirus vectors have been associated with thromboses. As a result, the U.S. doesn't use them, but they are used throughout the world. My point is that we don't know the mechanism of those thromboses. And I think we need some investigation. But aside from that, there are many other viruses that could be used as vectors. You know, I started actually when I was at Sanofi Pasteur in the 90s. That was the beginning of vectorology. And what we've seen is the increased use of vectors. But by and large, for scientific experiments rather than for routine vaccination so anyway my point is that we need to understand better the complications of uh, the use of vectors and how to eliminate uh, that sort of reaction that we don't don't want That's an important issue. And the third thing, and then the last thing I'll I'll mention, is with respect uh, to DNA-based vaccines. They, of course, have been obscured by the use of the messenger RNA. But the DNA vaccines do have a couple of advantages, uh, one of which is the persistence of of response, and secondly, the T-cell responses which are, in my view, better than the responses to the mRNA. So those are the three things I would mention.
0: We'll follow those with great uh, interest. So let's step back just a moment, Stanley. Of your many important accomplishments, which do you consider to be the most important achievement
2: during your career? Well. Oh, you're you're asking me to to be immodest, but um, feel free. (laughs) You've earned it. In view of the fact that rubella has disappeared from the Western Hemisphere, is now gone from Europe, and could, in my view, be eradicated from the world, I think that has to be number one number two is certainly something that, that I, I cannot attribute to myself alone, but I think I have helped the foundation of the field of vaccinology because when I started in the, in the 60s, it didn't really exist. I mean, you know, we had some vaccines that we were using you know, because they were they were there, but without a great deal of understanding of the immunology, et cetera. And putting together the textbook, the first edition, uh, was relatively easy in the sense that there wasn't that much known. But now we you know we've, we've just put together the eighth edition that will be published early next year. And it's a hefty, I mean, there is so much that we've learned that vaccinology is now a field of biology. It's not, you know, just an arbitrary chance kind of thing. And so I I feel proud of having helped that process uh, to take place.
0: Well, bravo and congratulations. I had in mind that you might suggest something along those lines. Now. Uh, you're one of the fellows that doesn't know how to spell that R word, retire. So what other goals do you have for the near term
2: at least? I I, I say this from a, a humoristic sense. so don't don't take me wrong, but despite the deaths, the destruction, the economic effects, this has been a, a great two years for vaccines. <laughs> and I, I say that facetiously, of course. But, but but the fact is that the emergency raised by COVID, by SARS 2, has stimulated the field of vaccinology, has stimulated it in many different ways, but uh, specifically, uh, stimulating the use of multiple approaches to the creation of vaccines obviously as you know as well as I bill uh, there are positive features of the vaccines we're using and there are negative features and so we need to work on those but in, in addition what we've learned is going to enable us to make better vaccines one of the uh, the obvious things is uh, the advent of structural uh, biology Uh, which has, uh, it appears, has solved the respiratory syncytial virus problem, that is, developing a vaccine that works against RSV. There have been other scientific accomplishments in the last two years which bode very well for, for the future, not only for infectious diseases, but for cancer and other entities. So my view is, and here I'm not being facetious, My view is that uh, although these recent years have been terrible, uh, they have allowed us to widen the field of vaccinology so that the future bodes well for many different new vaccines for infectious diseases and other entities.
1: It's uh, clearly a case of be careful what you wish for, I think. So Stanley, I'm going to ask, so what, what most keeps you up at night these days? (laughs)
2: <laughs> uh, you mean aside from my aches and pains? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> oh, what keeps me up? Well, uh, yeah, I, I will cite something, which I'm sure uh, Bill will agree with me. Together with the wide use of vaccines, there has been a reawakening of anti-vaccinationism. And uh, I am concerned about that. You uh, have seen, I'm sure, in the newspapers today that the governor of Florida has set up a group to pontificate on the safety of COVID vaccines. I have no doubt that that committee will come up with dubious conclusions, but will, will be critical of vaccination, which has already saved so many lives. But I, I'm quite worried about what has happened in these last couple of years with respect to, in effect, the, the reawakening of anti-vaccination uh, sentiment. So that is my greatest concern at the moment.
1: I I think we all share those concerns as well. So Stanley, before we sign off, I'd like to give you the opportunity that we give to all of our guests, and that is, what is the biggest myth that you would most like to bust?
2: Well, the biggest myth probably is that the vaccines somehow damage the uh, immune system. And in fact, quite the opposite uh, is true. It has been observed repeatedly that when measles vaccine is introduced into uh, a country, a, a poor country, for example, that he- health in the infants improves because not only the, the, the vaccine not only protects against measles, there is a nonspecific uh, effect against other infection. In other words, the vaccine raises or stimulates the immune system so that uh, other infections are less common, and therefore the mortality in those children is lower, not only mortality due to measles, but mortality due to other infections.
0: So, Stanley, thank you. It's been a privilege and a pleasure and great fun chatting with you. We've been talking today with Dr. Stanley Plotkin a physician, scientist, and scholar whose lifelong work on vaccines has helped save millions of lives and prevented human suffering throughout the world. Thank you all for listening to this episode of Infectious Ideas. You can follow, like, share, and download episodes on all streaming platforms, as well as find us at nfid.org with links to our social channels. We love hearing from listeners. So send us your questions, your comments, your concerns that may be infecting your mind.